Welcome to Embargo, the podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I'm here, as always, with my friend, comrade, and co-host, Mr. Timothy O'Toole. What is up, Tim? What is up, Brian? Anything happening in the world? Quiet. All quiet here. Quiet, all good. quiet in D.C. So We're done. Yeah, we're done. We don't have this is a short episode today. Not, nothing's really happened last week. Um, thanks to everyone for joining us. Um, a little bit of gallows humor from us at this point because, uh, my gosh, what a week this has been. We are recording this on Monday, February 28th. Um, I will give all credit to my friend, Mr. O'Toole, who this, <laughs> earlier today said, I think last week was the most significant week in the history of economic sanctions which may very well be the case time will tell i think but um my word we have been um just completely um running on the hamster wheel for the last week plus uh with everything that's going on in ukraine at the moment um and that is surprise surprise what we're going to spend the entire episode talking about today um so um yeah it's just uh, before we get started any initial thoughts wisdom comments you want to share with the people the good people out there it's just been exhausting but i mean you know uh it's exhausting for the world and not just from a sanctions perspective yeah obviously not to make light of the fact that we're talking about serious loss of life and um you know a, a blatant disregard for um the uh a sovereign nation um here and its people um, but uh, as a result of that, that is what that is what we're about to talk about is trying to fight against is trying to actually deter and curtail and stop all of that from happening. We will debate whether we're on the right track there or not. But um, it is um, my gosh, it has been a wild ride the last week or so. Even the Swiss cannot remain neutral on this issue, which I think says a lot. Good, <laughs> good, good point. Our good friends, hats off to our friends in Switzerland for getting in the mix. Um, so um, before we before we get started, uh, the normal preliminary uh, messages that we are not giving legal advice, uh, we are not uh, sharing any confidential information. Any and all opinions that you hear today are mine and Tim's. If you don't like them or disagree with them, please blame us. Um, if you like the pod, please spread the word. Um, and please subscribe, please give us a rating, hopefully a five-star rating. You can get us anywhere you find your pod content. Uh, so the agenda and the roadmap today are pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Russia, we're talking about Russia and we're talking about the tsunami of sanctions that have been levied against Russia in the past week by the US, the EU and many others around the world uh, and uh, what that has done what that amounts to what may be coming what hasn't happened yet there's a there's frankly we could have a probably a five-hour podcast if we really wanted to on this i think we don't want to put everybody to sleep and uh, tim and i need to sleep at some point today presumably hopefully uh unlike the past few days so uh we're not going to do that to all of you we're going to we're as we tend to do we're going to talk about some themes and some higher level um elements of what has been announced so far by the U.S. and the global community to combat what's going on in Ukraine, uh, 
um, right now. Uh, we're going to kind of roughly organize things in two parts. We're going to start with economic sanctions, and then we're going to move on to export controls. Uh, but that is it. We are just covering Russia, and we're going to cover the many different, most of the sub, the relevant subtopics they're under um, in a fairly brisk, uh, hopefully about 45-minute conversation that we're going to have here. And then it, we are going to have a lightning round topic because um, buried within all of the Russia news in the past week was the uh, the news and the announcement that DOJ is mothballing the China initiative, at least in its uh, in its current iteration. Uh, so we are going to spend maybe five minutes talking about that at the tail end in the lightning round. But otherwise, this is an all Russia um, an all Russia episode, and uh, that is what we're going to focus on. So before we jump in, Tim, any any final thoughts, or should we go let's, ahead and get after it? Let's jump into this. There's a lot to talk about. Yeah, let's go ahead and get after it. So. Um, for those that have been uh, asleep for the past week, um, the invasion of Ukraine uh, began in earnest just over a week ago by Russia, and the U.S. and the global community have responded in many, many different ways over the last several days. Uh, and so we'll we'll sort of briefly catalog those here. I'm not going to get into all of the um, aspects of this because I think there are just too many to cover. Um, like I said, we're going to hit some of the high points, and then we're going to um, talk about some themes and other things. So to kick things off at the beginning of last week, we saw the new executive order that was issued by the U.S., which was focused primarily on the two regions of eastern Ukraine that the U that Russia recognizes independent, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk. Um, those two, the executive order and the related actions that were taken by the U.S. have effectively put in place an embargo with respect to those regions. They're more or less treated the way that Crimea has been treated now for the past several years by the US uh, and all of the same kind of import export bans and uh, new investment bans with those regions are, are in effect. So that was sort of at the beginning of the week. Um, there were a couple of uh, SDN designations that targeted a couple of large Russian banks that came uh, also on the heels of that. Um, VEB and PSB were the two that were targeted. And then a handful of so-called Russian elites, and this has been a, a theme all along of the U.S. Um, uh, the U.S. strategy is to signal that Putin and his inner circle were going to suffer um, as a result of, of any aggression. There was also further restrictions on Russians, Russia's sovereign debt that kind of extended what was put in place uh, previously. And also near and dear to our hearts, there were some the waiver with respect to the Nord Stream 2 AG sanctions that had been announced last week was rescinded. And that means that uh, Nord Stream 2 AG itself is now blocked as is its CEO um, pursuant to the actions that were taken last year by, by the US. Um, a number of general licenses and FAQs issued in, in, response, uh, in relation to all those actions. Um, those were sort of the, let's call that the kind of early part of the week actions. And then in the first sort of full tranche, a couple of days later, we have much broader actions against the Russian financial sector, in particular, the two largest banks in Russia, Sparebank, which was not in fact added to the SDN list. It was, it was though cut off from the US financial system, cannot deal in dollars anymore due to the correspondent and account payable uh, sanctions that have been imposed, but not fully blocked. And then VTB Bank, which is in fact now subject to blocking. A number of other large Russian banks also now subject to blocking sanctions. And then a number of other institutions in Russia, both financial and in key sectors, uh, subject to debt and equity restrictions. Um, 
under what is now the new Directive 3 under EO14024. Um, those also went into effect later in the week um, as well. Um, and then uh, some more Russian elites sanctioned. At the end of the week, Putin himself and the Russian uh, and uh, was also sanctioned. Um, and then over the weekend, big news that uh, and something that we had handicapped as not terribly likely at the outset, that there, that um, certain Russian banks were going to be um, taken off the Swiss system. And that trickled out over the weekend, the U.S. and European allies um, making clear that that was the intention. We still don't have the names of the banks. That hasn't been sort of fully formalized, finalized yet, but that came out over the weekend. And then today, on Monday the 28th, the news that the Russian Central Bank and a couple of other um critical uh, Russian financial uh, entities were going to be, uh, again, not subject to blocking, but under a, what is a new directive for um, all US person transactions with those entities were gonna be prohibited essentially um, in the absence of OFAC authorization. Um, that, is a, that is a complete and drastic oversimplification of what has happened, but a quick run through of the high points that I, that I have, um, I may have missed a few things in there, but those are at, at a high level. That's what we're dealing with on the sanction side. Um, obviously, a lot of general licenses, FAQs, um, some regs that have come out in the past week. Uh, the new executive order I mentioned a week ago targeting um, the new regions in uh, the DNR and the LNR in Ukraine. So let me pause there. And let me ask you, Mr. O'Toole, what, and then I, I think I'm going to set you up for what I know is going to be your likely first point. What is the biggest thing in your mind that you have seen from this kind of initial wave, tsunami I called it before, of sanctions that have been imposed this past week? What is sort of your biggest takeaway? What are you most surprised by? What are you most interested in in terms of the approach that's been taken by the U.S. and allies uh, over the course of this first week? Um, that we've seen. Well, I think you you set it up there by by mentioning and the allies, but I I think that to me the biggest takeaway from this is just the the level of strategy that that has gone gone into this plan. And and what I mean by that is, so this is an attempt at shock and awe through sanctions, which we've never seen on this scale before. It's an attempt to essentially respond to a a, a military attack. Um, that was designed to essentially invade another country and take it over as quickly as possible with an attempt to stop it in some sense through sanctions by launching a lightning strike that's designed to cripple the Russian economy, the likes of which we've never seen. And what I mean by that is it's very targeted, but it's coming from all directions. And so it's not just the U.S., but it's the U.S. and the U.K. and the EU and Australia and Canada and Japan and New Zealand. All of them coming at the same time, just kind of aimed directly at the, the Russian financial system, the ability of the Russian government to obtain revenue in any way whatsoever, designed to knock out the ruble, and then designed to send a message to Putin's biggest supporters that um, if they continue down this road, they will basically not be able to uh, do anything outside of Russia or certainly in, in the West uh, for the foreseeable future and maybe forever. And, and there is, you know, I think a lot of, one of the things that I've heard about this um, plan is that it does leave out the, the 
oil and gas industry? I would say a couple of things about that. First, not so much because um, although you know the oil and gas sanctions have not uh, expanded against Russia in in a in a huge way since the last time, you can't buy anything um, from from an, a Russian oil and gas company without running into the financial sector sanctions. So so uh, it's it's it, I would say that it's 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 a kind of Yes, that's true, but but also it, go ahead. It's a ba it's a back it's maybe a backdoor way to get at the oil and gas industry, right? It's not. We talked earlier about well, maybe Gazprom and Luke Oil and some of these other massive entities would be in the crosshairs here. Clearly, the the judgment was made. Let's not do that initially, and do what you're talking about. And and you know, we'll see. But it certainly the early signs are that that's that's having a big impact. Yeah, and I, and so and. And with respect to the, with respect to, um, you know, it does leave some room to increase if that's the road that they decide to go down. But I think it was also designed to do as to to do as much damage to the Russian economy, while doing as little harm as possible to the Western economies. And and what I mean by that is, so the West, um, you know, didn't want to create oil price shocks around the world it's had somewhat of that effect anyway, but they didn't want to target the oil and gas industry, I think, because they were trying to aim directly at the Russian financial se sector without trying to, to create or it, with trying to minimize the, the shocks to the energy energy sector and not just not the Russian energy sector, but the world energy sector. Whether that will work remains to be seen, but that's kind of what I keep going back to is this was a coordinated consolidated strategy among lots of different allies that is just remarkable in in the a level of um, planning and forethought that went into it. Again, that doesn't mean it'll work, but it does mean that they have really thought about what they want to do and that they've actually managed to get a lot of different actors together to try and do it. Yeah, I mean, a couple of thoughts just on the back of that. One is we've never really seen an economy as large or sophisticated as Russia Russia's that's been targeted in this way by economic sanctions in this kind of comprehensive manner, right? We just have not seen that. The the countries that are you know most associated with these types of measures are you know smaller in scope and scale and complexity and um, oftentimes have been uh, sort of you, you know hampered by sanctions for sometimes for years and years and years and and this is just something that's totally different, you know when just a few years ago, it's hard to imagine that this would have been uh, on the table, right, with respect to some somebody, a country like Russia, especially given the close connectivity that it has to Europe and the economy of major major countries and economies in Europe. And that goes to your point about the coordination here and the fact that um, this has been a theme all along of the Biden administration sanctions policy is to coordinate closely with allies. And that is something that they had telegraphed for months that they were doing with respect to Russia and Ukraine. And that is something clearly that has happened and has happened at least initially to good effect, it seems, in terms of really trying to you know, buttress the uh, ability of Russia to, to find you know, convenient or quick outs here. Um, I think you've already alluded to the fact that you know the 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 what's happening with the ruble, what's happening with um, uh, inflation in Russia, what's happening in this is just within the past few days. Of course, this is already the response because you know effectively now it's not it's not 
it's not necessarily the case, but effectively they are being, you know, walled off from the global financial system in, again, in sort of targeted ways, again, to the point I made early at the beginning, when I went through my quick overview, spare bank, not an SDN. So blocking obligations, blocking um, prohibitions do not attach to spare bank. However, the directive two that is now, that they are now subject to requires that U.S. correspondent and payable through accounts have to terminate. So they are now, all, there's no U.S. dollar transacting that's going to be happening for spare bank anymore, um, at least not unless it's illicit and through some other source. It's not going to be through the United States anymore. So um, so that's a, you know, that's new. That's a new approach. That's a little different. That's a little more targeted. That's a little more nuanced. And so you're correct. Like, we shall see how this all works. Um, but it's not the it's it's again it's a little more of let's let's move with some precision here to impose as much pain as possible, and and refrain from imposing as much pain at, on ourselves and our close allies as we can, at least in the short term. Now how things play out over time will be interesting to see. You know one thing to note is that many of these actions have relatively short wind down periods and wind down licenses associated with them sometimes we see you know more than 30 days we see broader kind of lanes for uh, companies or entities to deal with um, the uh, the impact of big um, you know earth-shattering sanctions here it's a relatively compact timeline on many of these um, uh, measures not not all of them. Some of them are a little longer, but not but many of them, 30 days or less. And so it'll be interesting to see how that all works and how that plays out here in the coming days and months. But to your point, if people can't get paid to do business with Russia, then they're not going to do business with Russia, regardless of you know or or the the ways that that's going to happen are going to be um, you know there's going to have to be sort of new new avenues, new, um, you know, supply lines that are, uh, that are, you know, put together to understand how that can really work and how that's going to play out. And again, the Europeans have given this a lot of thought already because they've been worried about their energy supply and a very, you know, various other, you know, just interdependence that they have with Russia, but it'll be fascinating to see how this plays out in, um, in, uh, in practical terms over the next couple of weeks and months. And I think one thing that you and I have talked about, which again, I'll set you up to talk about, cause this is your, you know, you were the one that's sort of brought this up. I know a few times already with clients is that it's striking to me and to us that, you know, we're not seeing reliance on Katsa authorities here. We're not seeing reliance on or reference to at all secondary sanctions authorities when it comes to the measures that have been taken in the past week, which is a striking change from what we saw, you know, in the past several years with re regard to anything Russia related. And certainly with regard to, you know, Iran, anything Iran related, which is, which is very heavily um, focused on the secondary sanctions impact and trying to scare away essentially parties from friendly countries. And, and to your point on the allied response and the coordinated response seems pretty clear to us that that's just not deemed to be necessary by the U.S. at this point, given the way that everybody is in 
close alignment on how to respond here. Yeah, I mean, so secondary sanctions have long been an irritant to our allies in the sense that, you know, the U.S. will impose sanctions and then say, and oh, by the way, allies, even for transactions that don't concern us and are beyond our jurisdiction, we're going to sanction those too by cutting anybody in, in your countries off from the U.S. financial system who does things with the sanctioned country we don't like. Or at least threaten that, which is which is sort of equivalent to basically, you know, it just it just makes things that much more difficult. And, to, and it's to... an irritant because you have countries who are saying this is beyond U.S. jurisdiction. Now, it, it you know, there's a theory as to why it's not, but but it certainly is controversial overseas. That approach really does it's it's almost glaring in its absence here, in the sense that there are CATSA authorities that could apply to this that are not cited in the executive orders that that President Biden has signed. That we'll talk about the export controls later, but they have carve outs for the allies under the theory that the allies are going to impose their own export controls. And so so what what has happened here, and we'll see. If the you know if the other countries back it up, but they seem to be the movement on SWIFT seems to have been driven out of Europe. The central bank movements seem to have driven been driven out of Europe. Europe. Boris Johnson was saying over the weekend that the plan was to crush the ruble, and that plan seems to have at least in part come from overseas. So so in this 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 regime, unlike you know Iran or unlike Syria or unlike even Venezuela, what you have is the the U.S. imposing, you know, the U.S. basically taking on U.S. nexus transactions, but leaving rest of the world transactions to the allies to deal, you know, U.K. deals with U.K., EU deals with EU, and so on and so on. And that's something that we've never seen. And we've talked, you know, one of our themes throughout this this podcast has been that multilateral sanctions work better. But but this will really put it to the test because we've never seen a multilateral program like this, even even in circumstances where there are some multi where there, there is some, some multilateral coordination. Usually the U.S. sanctions are much more aggressive than anybody else's. Right now the plan, at least as best I can tell, and the EU is a little slower to act because it's got more procedural requirements than OFAC has. But at least as best we can tell, it looks like the 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 rest of the world sanctions are going to be at least as strong in the U.S. in many instances. And that's pretty remarkable given that how much more connected Europe is to, to Russia than, than the U.S. is. Yeah, not to mention the fact that another topic that we've talked about endlessly for the past two years, quite frankly, Nord Stream 2, Germany came to the decision on their own to decertify de de the project, ensuring that at least for the foreseeable future, that is not coming online. And, you know, members of Congress and others here in the U.S. were of the mind that we could sanction Nord Stream 2 into submission. That's not really obviously what happened. I think circumstances kind of, you know, took hold. And because I think of the multilateral approach and the coordinated approach, the Germans eventually got on board with the idea that they had to act to stand in the way of that. So, uh, you know, similar a similar theme there in terms of where where we kind of netted out or have netted out at least for the time being based on on this approach. And again, to be clear, we're not sort of touting this as a victory by any stretch for this approach for the Biden administration or anything else. That is not the case necessarily. Time is going to tell how effective this is going to be. For anybody who listened to the last episode we recorded, we we were talking about the void that China was ready to fill with respect to everything 
Russia related. Although, you know, China seems China's in an awkward position because they seem to be, I think, on the one hand, not too pleased with what Russia's doing, but on the other hand, don't want to speak out too harshly against their good friends uh, in Russia. And so they're kind of, uh, you know, laying back a little bit, but certainly seem to be willing to take the step in and take the um, the economic benefit to the extent that they can. But again, to the point that we raised the last time, perhaps given the way that the the world has united to really, um, you know, uh, act in, in the face of the Ru- Russia's aggression in Ukraine, maybe that would embolden the U.S. or others to act uh, with respect to China if they if they're too brazen here in terms of what they try attempt to do to sort of um, either benefit themselves or you know alleviate the pain on on behalf of Russia. So I, that'll be really fascinating to see. Well, I, you know, I, I, you raise China, and I think it's a really good point, and I think it, it may explain the 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 energy kind of carved out, for lack of a better term, from from these sanctions. You know, uh, for the most part. Most of the sanctions programs, certainly Venezuela, Iran, um, Syria to some extent, are targeted at oil. And they've been very porous. And part of the reason they have is because oil is a commodity that can be moved around the world. You don't need to send it through wires that people can monitor. It doesn't go through. You don't have to send the oil through New York if you're trans, you know, transacting in, in dollars necessarily. And so it's something that is is is, I think... You know, while it can be, you can impose sanctions and you can certainly slow down the flow of oil. It's really hard to stop it, and in the long term, it, it's it, it. You just usually end up raising prices, but eventually a secondary market develops for oil, and China has bought a lot of Iranian oil, even since the secondary sanctions have been in place. And I think the thinking on oil was probably like, it, it's it's certainly not going to be eff- that effective. There'll be a lot of holes in that that those sort of sanctions, and and they're slow. Whereas the financial sector sanctions, I mean, as OFAC has, has really perfected them over time, they're, they are very, um, they're, they're much less porous. There are a lot, there, there are a lot, it's much more difficult to move money around without using the financial system. Now that doesn't mean that it's impossible. There is an entire, you know, Chinese financial system that, uh, can be used, but it, it's not, Russia isn't that connected to it. My, my, last read of this was that Russia reserves in in, um, in RMB like 13%. So they really weren't, and that's that has increased over increased over the last few years. So even that number is recent. But but so the so that you know using the financial system is really where the strengths are for from a sanctions perspective. And so that's really where these sanctions have focused. Um, and and again. I don't know. I'm not saying that they will necessarily be effective, but I think what they, what, what the, you know, the U.S. and the Allies have done, is take what they've seen has been the proven most effective sanction t- tool and the one that works most quickly, and tried to, tried to make it impose the most aggressive financial sanctions regime that we've ever seen. And I think that the thing to bear in mind that Tim and I are reminded of constantly and have been reminded of constantly over the last week is the idea that the global financial community, in particular, the Western financial community was ready for this in many ways. They were the most ready of anybody, I would say, of of what could be coming. And they are the most ready to spring into action, to put the clamps down, to comply quickly and to, you know, adjust their risk tolerance to perhaps close to zero with respect to most of what is going to be uh, touching Russia at this point. 
and to serve effectively as a as a policing mechanism on this. And that's exactly what Tim is talking about. And and the idea that even if, uh, you know, non-U.S. entities uh, or even U.S. entities who might feel that they have a pathway to be doing still do legal business in parts of Russia or with certain uh, entities in Russia, the cost and the difficulty and and the um, that that is going to take has has just been ratcheted up just by untold amounts in the last week to the extent that there are going to be plenty of rational actors out there who are going to look at the Russian market now and say it's not worth the juice is not worth the squeeze for lack of a less cliched way to put it but that's you know that's that's the reality and that's what that's what I think was everybody was hoping to achieve here all the policymakers are hoping to achieve here but that is um, you know that is definitely a real uh, a reality and you know that's a difference between you know I'm putting aside people who are just trying to sort of figure things out maybe wind things down and step away but anybody who's you know committed kind of beyond you know the immediate near term to stay we want to stay in Russia we want to continue to do business there it's going to the degree of difficulty and the complexity is just has just gone up considerably yeah I mean I think you know one of the reasons that that the financial sector is the area where I think sanctions can be the most effective is because of one of the things that we talked about before this, this overcompliance. That is that the financial sector really alone among the sectors, I think around the world, if you want to, you know, give a broad generalization as opposed to, you know, talking about anecdotes. I mean, it, it does tend to have the financial Companies tend to have much larger compliance staffs, be much more risk averse than other companies in terms of the sorts of business that they'll do. And so by imposing these sectors on the financial section or, uh, or by sanctions on the financial sector of Russia, uh, you've, you've enlisted all of these compliance teams from all of the banks around the world to really enforce that in a way that, you know, OFAC doesn't have its own enforcement officers. It doesn't have its own investigative capabilities. It's it's kind of enlisted in this sanctions, this huge group of compliance officials from banks around the world in a way that, you know, with oil and gas and, and other sectors, you just don't have those sorts of efficient enforcement mechanisms. Right. Not to mention the fact that, you know, we are aware that, um, you know, there was a lot of pre-baking of this by OFAC and Treasury and other officials in the U.S. government who were doing roadshows and talking to key groups to sort of let let it be known that, you know, the sky was about to fall potentially and that the, everybody needed to be aware of that and be vigilant, ready for it. And ready to hop to it and comply with whatever the U.S. decided to uh, and its allies decided to, to cook up because this this, you know, by all the discussions we've had, by all the public reporting and the signaling that has happened, we didn't know until just a few days ago precisely what this was going to look like. And that's and that is that maybe leads me to to a final point that we can talk about before we shift to export controls, which is, you know, I know that my clients who were trying to get out in front of this some of whom had spent a lot of time and effort and energy are, you know, trying to game plan and, and have contingency plans in place and be ready for this. I, you know, they've, they, they have still struggled, quite frankly, some of them with uh, trying to figure out exactly how to navigate all of this in the last couple of days, because I think that's not, and that, and that, that 
takes into account the fact that there was a lot that was left on the table here that did not get implemented. To Tim's point, there was nothing explicitly targeting the big actors in the in the oil and gas industry. There was nothing targeting big actors in other big revenue generating uh, you know, sectors of the Russian economy. This is really mostly, it's almost exclusively targeted at the financial sector and Russian elites. That's really it. And there's a lot of spillover and sort of cascading effect uh, in many other aspects of the Russian economy and the global economy, but that's really where the pain was targeted at those actors. That's it. And so I know that I can speak for myself and I can speak for Tim by saying that I've basically been on the phone day in, day out, 24 seven for the last week, fielding calls and helping to walk through, well, what do we do next? Or what do we have to prioritize and what do we need to worry about? And how do we assess this or this or this, you know, what could we do? We have to pause everything indefinitely. Can we, can we take is a week enough time, two weeks enough time to kind of get our arms around what this is going to mean for us, et cetera. And there's, that is just, there was an article that just appeared today, I think in, in Bloomberg or Law360 or one of the publications that was basically all about how sanctions lawyers are <laughs> like are are too busy. And quite frankly, Tim and I were too busy to respond to that article. Like we both got contacted right. and I didn't have time to comment for the article because I was on the phone for three straight days. So, you if know, you're commenting in that article. You're not busy enough. Yeah, I literally wrote the guy back at midnight. And I'm like, sorry, catch me next time. I don't have time to talk to you. And like, that's literally what the article was about. It's like so that is. It is it's pretty astonishing and, and like what this is what this is wreaking around the globe. And I guess just I'll throw it to you just for any kind of say you're a, you're a man of, of wisdom and sage advice. If, if there's anything that anything I mean, I should also tell people that as we speak, we are finalizing a 15 page uh, update on the co that will comprehensively cover everything that's happened in the last week. We're not going to try to do that here because, again, we right. don't want to put everybody. So if to we sleep. look like we're typing, we're yeah, we're, we're not. But we're not. <laughs> we don't want to put you all to sleep. <laughs> like we need sleep ourselves. But um, what? Are, just any kind of quick thoughts on on sort of what this is what this is doing to folks right now before we pivot to export controls. Well, you know, you, you do raise a really good point about the the fact that people are still struggling to comply when a lot of this was predicted. I mean, we we predicted most of this maybe not all of it but but you know the 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 real attack on the financial sector we predicted what we didn't predict and what i think is really making people struggle at this point is how fast this has come into play and how coordinated it's been with with the allies and how it's gone from like within a week to, from russia being a fairly lightly sanctioned country to one where we're just trying to struggle to keep up with how many sanctions have been imposed on Russia and really revising that every couple of hours. And so, yeah. I mean, I, I've never seen anything like this. And I think that's the speed and, and just kind of it coming from all different directions on the financial sector is what is kind of was not predicted or predictable, I think. The, the other thing that I would caution everybody is don't by any stretch think that this is the end. Whenever you hear this, podcast, which will probably be the first couple days of March, whenever you read our client alert or whatever your your outside law firm's client alert on this topic, be mindful that it may already be outdated <laughs> because there is so the pace here and the um, is so rapid in terms of the changes. So we are obviously living and breathing this 24 seven, as are a lot of people right now. But don't don't be lulled into some false sense of thinking, OK, well, now we know precisely what we're dealing with. This is in some ways just a the, the whole scenario here has become a chaos agent for 
the entire kind of global sanctions compliance community and everybody is just having to you know burn the candle at both ends to to try to make sure that you're staying on top of the latest and the greatest here so i would expect that to continue i don't think that by any stretch we're done uh and i think that you know for the next at least few weeks if not few months i would expect that there's going to be a lot of activity here and so keep 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 eyes open ears open and just keep keep a watch as to what's going on um we tr we thought about doing an emergency pod last week which it's a good thing we didn't because it would have been totally overcome by events and we would have been you know not have even covered like half of what's happened in the last five days so Anyway, just just a word a word of warning on that is that I think everybody's got to stay vigilant and stay uh, you know we'll, we will I'm sure our next episode here will be a continuation of this one and um, but just just be be aware of that. Yeah, I, I it's I, I think the speed with which this is developing yeah. and the unpredictability in terms of where the next move is going to come from is is part of the design. Yeah, so. With that, let's let's pivot a little bit to the the other big piece of this, which is export controls, which again, to Tim's point, has been just as well coordinated, it seems, as the sanctions between the US and its close allies. I think there are kind of a couple of big issues here that I'll just kind of set up and then throw it to Tim. So there's the expanded the drastically expanded licensing requirements on the US side with respect to Russia, which you know, until just a week ago were were pretty light. Many and if not most items did not require licensing to Russia. Now that's not the case. There's a, there's also uh, you know a presumption of denial with respect to most license applications uh, that are going to Russia for U.S. U.S. items. That's number one. Number two is the two new foreign direct product rules, which which drastically expand the scope of foreign produced items um, that are going to Russia. One which covers the entire country. One which co covers Russian uh, military end users. I'll let Tim talk about how uh, there have been there are some significant carve outs there for allied countries who are imposing similar restrictions. But that's a that's another big one. And then there's the shift in approach or the expansion again of how the U.S. rules now and BIS is now treating military and users. There's a movement of the previously listed MEUs over to the entity list. There's an expansion of what that covers. Um, and and so, yeah, I'll stop there and I'll sort of throw it to Tim and just sort of what your initial thoughts and reactions are on the on the export controls front so i you know here the breadth of the new export controls is is pretty astounding i mean everything everything that was that had a unilateral control in uh in in categories three through nine which is a pretty huge swath of of goods i mean basically you've got electronics computers telecom and, and information security laser sensors navigation avionics marine and aerospace all of those now if there were unilateral controls where a license was not required for russia 58 58 new eccns um, now require a license for Russia. The only thing that's left out, uh, you know, are zero, one, and two, and that's n nuclear materials, materials, and materials processing. So, so pretty much, if it's a if it's a good and it's not a nuclear good, um, an EAR ninety nine, an EAR ninety nine. I mean, I, but but from the from the Commerce Control yeah, list, yeah, yeah. That, that that's it's pretty much everything that you that, that is is kind of a, a good that has any sort of controls on it. And these were the most minimally controlled ECCNs. Now, EAR-99 is not included, so that's a 
a big carve out, but if it's if it's on the if it's on the commerce control list, it now requires a license to Russia. There's a presumption of denial, which is you, you know I think will be uh, very strictly uh, enforced here, and 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 then you know most of the license exceptions are gone too. So so you, you really it's going to create huge restrictions on what can go to Russia. Now there. Are, the, the carve outs which were kind of interesting for um for items that uh that that would otherwise be subject to some of these new kind of very strict foreign direct product rules some of the de minimis calculations those were also really interesting as well because the 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 and, and i guess i should back up this is a draft new rule that purports to be effective as of last week, but won't even be finalized or published until this week, which is also quite odd and, and I would say potentially unenforceable, at least during this one week period. <laughs> but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't advise anybody to ignore it, but I do question whether or not a draft rule that's not published yet is actually enforceable. But again, I wouldn't advise anybody to test that. But but uh, that that rule has essentially it, within it, or at least the draft, um, says that it, for certain countries, and it's basically all of the allied, all of the NATO countries, EU countries, UK, Japan, Canada, the countries you would expect, those countries are pla are planning their own export controls that are similar to these, and therefore um, some of the some of the new rules don't apply. Um, to, to goods from those countries. And so, for example, like we're not going to have strict de minimis rules in those countries in the, in the way that we could because, uh, because we expect those, it won't matter, right? I mean, what, who needs to have the EAR applied to something with 25% control content when, um, when you can have the UK rules, which are the same, apply to them? Why make anybody go through the de minimis calculation? And so certain materials that otherwise would be counted in that calculation are excluded at this point. You've got different foreign direct product rules in those countries than in, in other countries um, to make sure that it's it's basically you know, kind of like with the sanctions, if you're in the US, if you've got a, a good that's clearly subject to the EAR, then US restrictions will apply. But for a UK product, the UK restrictions will apply because at least in theory, they're going to be the same anyway. So you might as well not make it so complicated. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's, I, I would say that, you know, the, the biggest thing that I would, that I would say, so to Tim's point, I think the, again, the, the multilateral nature of the approach here and the, um, the faith that the U.S. is putting in its allies to hold up their end of the bargain here is a marked departure from what we've seen before. The fact that, you know, form the new, the two new foreign direct product rules are not going to apply for goods produced in some of these countries that Tim just mentioned. Um, just a, you know, a pretty, uh, you know, remarkable kind of change in approach, I guess, from what has happened historically, not to mention the fact that the, you know, we've seen the special Huawei foreign produced direct product rule a couple of you know years ago. And we spent a lot of time thinking about talking about that. Now there's a, now there's rules that are applying to the entire country of Russia um, which, you know, depending on how supply arrangements and supply chains are set up, could be quite an onerous task for folks to try to understand and comply with if they are going to continue to produce and supply Russia. For obvious reasons, this was set up, you know, and we talked about this in prior episodes, you know, the idea that, again, for example, semiconductors that are produced in Taiwan, that is that is being targeted here. They don't want they don't want 
the the chips that are produced in Taiwan to be able to flow to Russia to be able to support the military uh, ambitions of Russia to you know to support the aerospace and maritime and other key technology sectors of of the Russian economy. That is clearly what is intended here, which is why you know the scoping of this is 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 done in the way that it is. That being said, you know for multinationals, and I've already had a number of these conversations. I know Tim has as well. It's still going to be quite a tall task for folks who are planning to at least continue to supply Russia, or at least com, you know, complete existing orders or contemplated orders that were in place to ensure that they're doing that in a manner that is fully compliant with the new rules that will um, take into account the EU controls that are going into place, the UK controls, these other countries, and factor in whatever US licensing requirements might be in place, which again, are far more extensive than they were um, just a few days ago. So. As a practical matter, doing that review, ensuring that that is something that is being done in a fully compliant way, that's going to take some resources for companies that are, you know, committed to trying to follow through on these orders. You know, I will I will say that it's clearly not the intention of the Commerce Department and the U.S. government to to necessarily cut off the Russian people from all Western, um, you know, items uh, that are not of, you know, some kind of strategic importance to the Russian government. That being said, we know that there's going to be some impact on that. There's going to be some lessening of imports um, on on the end on that end from from Russia. It is going to have some impact on uh, you know the sort of the Russian civilian population, no doubt. Um, but that being said, I think again in the way that this was sort of targeted, uh, it's meant not to be kind of a full uh, you know embargo obviously we talked about that we talked about that as obviously something that had been floated or discussed as sort of the most drastic of rules that could be put into effect you know again there's there's more there's room to grow here as as extensive these new rules are there is room to grow there's room to extend um there's room to do more and so i do think that for now this is a um you know it's a pretty um strong initial change to the rules that is going to have impact it's not going to probably be felt as immediately as the economic sanctions side of things uh you know i think it but i think there are a lot of people right now trying to figure out how they can comply with this whether they can especially given the presumption of denial um that is hanging over everything i i would note that there are uh commerce makes a point of obviously calling out that there are going to be case by case Review given, obviously, the license applications, they're they're um, they're expecting a drastic uptick in license applications. Not surprisingly, you know, if it's humanitarian uh, in nature, if it's for a U.S.-based, um, you know, if it's a, it's a wholly owned sub of a U.S.-based company, or if it's uh, you know a, a multinational that's based in a uh, you know a U.S. allied country. If it's you know any health and safety considerations, any number of those kind of considerations, there might be good reasons or a sort of good policy um, arguments to be made as to why licenses should be granted at least in the short term, if not over a longer period of time, to get certain controlled items into Russia. But you know those are going to have to be thought through very carefully. We've already started doing that on behalf of a number of clients that are looking at this carefully. Uh, that is something I would imagine a lot of people are thinking through right now. Um, so it's just going to be um, it's just going to be a lot of effort to get to get sort of um, to get this uh, to get this done and to potentially get these exports into Russia going forward.
Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would add to that, because I think those are all really good points, is just the, the, the change to the military end user and end use rule with respect to Russia is also pretty significant in the sense that, uh, and, and understandable given the, the policy reasons for, for implementing these changes, but you know the normal MEU restrictions only apply to certain products that are on uh, you know a, one of the supplements to Part 744. The, these rules now, the, the, the restrictions on sales to Russian military end users, which is a broad category or end uses, apply to all items subject to the EAR with really limited exceptions, food and medicine, um, being one, and then a, a, a couple of, um, you know, low-level computer devices being the other, basically, you know, phones and computers, but certain types that are 5A992 and 5D992. And so, like, it is a huge restriction uh, uh, to to the Russian military. Pretty much, you can't sell them a pencil anymore, um, and and for understandable reasons and that without a, without a license and that that is a big change um, and given the 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 expansive reach of military end user um, you know it could could also be significant yeah no agree with that so um, you know there's going to be a lot more to talk about there in terms of what's coming next and how that's going to get tweaked I also expect that you know there's only been there was a fact sheet that was issued by BIS I think perhaps when the final version of the rule is, is issued or perhaps soon thereafter, um, much like when the military and use and end user rules were expanded a, um, a couple years ago, there was there was kind of an FAQ document. I would expect they're going to we're going to get something like that in the coming weeks um, to help, you know, sort of flesh out some of the some of the uh, the gray areas here that we're all starting to bump into on that. But for now, I think um, that's all we want to say about that. So we will. So let's leave. So again, that was about 45 minutes on Russia, all things Russia. We could probably keep talking for the next several hours, but we're going to stop ourselves there for now. We will obviously be back to this on the next episode as well, uh, but we will pause for the lightning round sign effect and one topic in the lightning round today. So it's a truly lightning lightning round, which is DOJ's China initiative. So um, last week in the midst of all the chaos unfolding in Ukraine and the, re the global response to that, um, the Assistant Attorney General for National Security, Matt Olson, gave a speech uh, in wherein he outlined the review that had occurred under his watch since taking over in that position of DOJ's China Initiative and um, acknowledging that there needed to be a change made and that the China Initiative as it existed and as it was conceived of under uh, former Attorney General Jeff Sessions would be no longer and um, acknowledging the um, concerns about bias and stifling academic uh, collaboration and research and many of the other things that and um, many of the other things that we've talked about and that um, observers have have raised as um, you know problem areas with respect to the China initiative as it as it took shape and as it was implemented over the course of the last few years that's not to say that they are Dismissing all cases that were brought sort of under the umbrella of the China Initiative, that is not the case necessarily. They are definitely standing behind a number of prosecutions that are still in, in progress right now, but um, effectively they are shelving um, the China Initiative as it exists. What he, he said, one interesting thing that I'll, that I'll talk to and then I'll sort of tee up a reaction from Mr. O'Toole, who I know has strong feelings about this. So he said 
um, he brought into the discussion sort of and contextualized other bad actors at the state level, Iran and Russia obviously being among the top there, um, and said, you know, we need to have, you know, our truly our our um, our focus is not just China; it's these, it's all of these actors, and it's um, and it, and we're not going to relent there. We're obviously going to continue to focus on all of that. But he did say, and this was the thing that I think that Tim and I talked talked about at length when we talked about the the dismissal that um, came against the MIT professor a few a few weeks ago. You know, cases that are not necessarily tied to that are talking about you know. It, you know, misstatements or false statements purportedly made on grant applications and things of that sort, um, those just do not rise to the level of of persons that are trying to abscond with or exfiltrate or steal sensitive U.S. technology, controlled technology uh, and items and bring them back to China or other foreign countries, right? It's just, in our view, that's just not, those are not, that's not an apples to apples thing. And that's not to say that this has to be a one note approach but I think clearly in the hierarchy of the pecking order, thinking about protecting those things is probably at the top of the list. And in fact, in the speech, um, Mendelssohn said, uh, you know, top top imperatives in terms of the shifting of approach here is to defend core national security interests and protect most sensitive information and resources, protect economic security and prosperity, including key technologies and private information about American supply chains and industry. Um, those are the top two things he mentioned. So that sort of plays directly into what we talk about all the time and what we focus on all the time. And and so that seems that the strategic reorientation would be a little bit more toward what we would expect and think would be perhaps a better use of DOJ resources in this regard, rather than bringing criminal cases against professors that may have omitted something on a grant application. So. I will throw this to you, Mr. Tool, for your reactions, and I will tee up one final thought, which is among the more cynical out there, they would say, well, this is really no change. It's just a rebranding or it's kind of a re, you know, they're just sort of repainting. They're going to continue. DOJ is going to do the same thing they've been doing. They're just kind of, they re, they're kind of tuck their tail between their legs and they're going to, um, you know, they're wise enough to know that they shouldn't call it the, the China Initiative anymore, but they're really going to be doing the same thing. What would you say to sort of what Matt Olson said and, and to the sort of more cynical views out there that this is really no change at all? Well, first of all, good riddance to the China Initiative. Um, I, I think whenever you have an initiative that, you know, focuses on a country, the, the risk of spillover to kind of focusing on um, you know, ethnic, ethnicity or some other immutable characteristic is there. And I think this initiative showed that. It all, but, it, but I think almost as bad is the spillover effect to, um, you know, crimes or charges that don't have anything to do with what your goal is. So I, I even if it's rebranding, I think branding matters because it, it, it branding tells you what it is that you want to focus on. And so what I would respectfully submit to DOJ is that they ought to really focus on trade theft and 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 you know theft by anyone of uh, any foreign uh, adversary for sure, foreign rival for sure of um, important U.S. technology, and I, I think I even have a name for what they ought to call this. I think they should call it "Stop the Steal," <laughs> and, and I think that would be a new name. <laughs> uh, this is what happens when we're punchy and we haven't slept in a week. Tim's got all the jokes. Trademark, trademark, Timothy O'Toole. <laughs> <laughs> 
stop the steal initiative. <laughs> and, and then that would, people would keep their eyes on the ball. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's an appropriate note to end on. For those loyal listeners out there, we hope you were, um, we hope you're as amused by that final thought as we are. Um, okay, that's that's all we have for for this for this episode. Uh, we will no doubt be back in March with more on Russia, uh, and um, as things continue to unfold, maybe we will have to do an emergency episode at some point in the future. But for now, uh, you will hopefully all have this one first few days of March. It will. Um, encapsulate our thoughts at least on the first week of, of what's going on here in terms of the global response to the invasion of Ukraine by by Russia and um, like we said we're um, there's uh, no end in sight here so we will um, we will catch our breath and we will be back again the next time to uh, talk on talk about this further so until then everybody stay well and stay sanctions free Stay well, everybody. This podcast was produced by HeartCast Media.